This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. In today's show, I speak to Tom Westbrook, a journalist at Reuters, as we do a quick recap of the key business stories that dominated the Asian press and get a sense on what would be the main themes driving the business press in 2023. Welcome, Tom. In your view, what were the key stories and milestones that piqued your interest that could structurally change Asia's economy? Well, I mean, I think 2022 is a year of global trends and global stories. And Asia, you know, just sort of fitted, was kind of dominated by the big themes that were were shaping the whole world mm. last year. And, and most of those were things that nobody really predicted at the start of last year. A war in Ukraine, inflation running kind of out of control and requiring huge, you know, the biggest interest rate hikes, you know, generation in the US, which set off interest rate rises around the world and uh, has financial markets kind of, they spent last year trying to price in the damage that those interest rate hikes are going to inflict on the economy in the months to come. So it was sort of a year of of more of the same and and recovery from COVID in most of Asia, but a year of turmoil in the market where what's to come was it was sort of priced priced in. It, it was a year where the US dollar absolutely surged and and hit like multi-decade highs, and you know that has consequences all around yeah. the world, but but especially in Asia and. It was a year where investors had their worst return since 2008. Really outside of Indonesia, Malaysia and Australia were probably the strongest were probably the strongest places in in Asia. The the kind of the soaring commodity prices that we saw set off by the by the Ukraine war mm-hmm. uh, like Australia and and exporters like in Indonesia and Malaysia where you know their own kind of fuel Supplies were able to cushion the local economy from from soaring energy prices. Kind of allowed a bit of a buffer in those places. Um, and then there was China, which is really a kind of a case a case apart, where we saw China continuing to really grapple with COVID through 2022, and we saw some of the same kind of big themes that had rattled markets over the last and business over the last five or six years in China really kind of continued with unpredictable regulatory crackdowns. Jack Jack Ma was like an invisible man through 2022. The China sort of tech story that had boomed during the pandemic just kept sinking and sinking and sinking. Well, that's where I find interesting, Tom, when, you, when I hear you, it sounds like the, the stories that take place in Asia, you know, apply quite similar color with the global theme, right? So there, there's really, there was really a big distinction, but perhaps the biggest distinction actually within was within Asia, between outside China and within China because of the reopening strategy, uh, reopening story that's taking place, right? So as a journalist, and when you talk to your fellow journalists across the network of Reuters, do you see the tone of your reporting very different, right, between the different markets in Asia? Was there more optimism? Was there more cautious tone between the different markets in across Asia Pacific when it came to the reopening, especially? Uh, yeah, yeah, there definitely, there definitely was. But I mean, because China is is the the biggest market and the biggest economy mm. in Asia, 
it was really also a year of sort of second guessing and anticipating about what China may or may not do. And, you know, the read on that has been as hazy as hazy as ever. And we're seeing kind of the surprise uh, just unfolding in the last few weeks about China's reopening. Journalists, I think most investors were all kind of anticipating a reopening happening some months from now. Everyone was kind of talking and preparing for something to sort of gradually start to happen in April, March or April. But sort of from November, we just had a sudden, fairly sudden removal of almost all um, restrictions in China. Yeah. Uh, that's really like unleashed the virus on China's population. And it's very difficult to kind of get a, a full picture of what's going on in China. But I mean, what what we've focused, tried to focus on is specific districts in in Beijing and trying to sort of extrapolate that out mm. to kind of get a picture of what might be happening in the rest of China. And what we've been seeing is overwhelmed hospitals, overwhelmed crematoriums, and every indication that the human toll is 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 awful. Experts are anticipating something in the vicinity of a million COVID deaths this year in China. And this is where it's got, it got very interesting and where we contrast China versus maybe the rest of Asia. There was so much anticipation of a reopening in China. And I recall, you know, that from its earliest June, July, we were having conversations about when China would be reopening. So everybody was expecting, oh, in October, oh, yeah. it would come. Yeah, yeah. There was some, there was, it was like palpable tension uh, about when China would reopen. In stark contrast to perhaps the rest of Asia, where the announcements were relatively sudden, there was a very short expectation time compared to China. But in the end, China did uh, follow the same strand as the rest of Asia, right? They didn't follow our expectations. They did their own internal assessment and decided what was right for them. So there is really some parallel or some similarities, no? Yes. And I was at an Outlook presentation today and some investors are kind of looking to the India kind of Delta wave to try and understand what what might happen next. And basically that was short and sharp. And I mean, look, that one ended up having sort of global implications and triggering lockdowns in the US and travel restrictions around the world. Perhaps the rest of the world is is now past that. But um, markets, I suppose, are, are certainly looking at it that way and kind of trying to look beyond the, the human toll in China to what happens on the other side and mm-hmm. all the pent-up demand that it's going to be released sort of faster and sooner than than everybody thought. And, and so then I guess the biggest story that actually dominated uh, 2022, which also was driven by the reopening strategy, was inflation. I mean, I think across Asia-Pacific, inflation was covered intensely. There was so much conversation about rising cost of living, and especially in this part of Malaysia also, it's been, it was a hot electoral potato. Uh, when you scan across Asian Pacific, right, how how different was the media coverage uh, between the different countries in Asia, or even across the world uh, with respect to inflation? Did everybody feel it the same, or was it just that the coverage felt different? I think if you look at it, if you look at it globally, the sorts of cost pressures that Asia is facing are slightly more benign than the rest of the world. Subsidies. Uh, just the export profile of countries in Asia uh, limiting their exposure to energy price rises. 
uh, has kept inflation more subdued in this part of the world than than everywhere else. But that said, it's a cost of living pressure in a world where I think everybody already feels like they're under strain. Um, and so it fast becomes like the number one talking point. Rent is going up. The price of every vegetable and fruit in the grocery store is, is going up. Electricity bills through the roof. And, you know, you can see how this flows into politics and, and monetary policy around the world. The, the comparison with places like Europe and US is, is flattering to Asia, though, in that we haven't had the sort of double-digit double digit inflation that America and Europe and the UK, for that matter, are seeing. And that is kind of spurring hope that Asia isn't going to require this sort of scale of interest rate hikes that, that we're seeing in, in the US. And obviously, China, where demand has been kind of stomped by... COVID lockdowns, there's, there's been, you know, no inflation whatsoever. Yeah, so it's a very um, it's a very mixed picture, I guess, when you're saying, and relatively Asia did feel it, but relatively speaking, didn't bear as much brunt as what you saw in the US and Europe. I guess also partly precipitated by the war. And so it does come back, though, to the fact that, you know, one of the key concerns we've had this year in dominated stories was King Dollar, yeah? There was such a strengthening of the US dollar versus many Asian currencies. Were you surprised by the strengthening of the US dollar to that extent? And what stories really struck you there? Yeah, it's a really astonishing rise in the US dollar. Later part of the year, it, it, it has started to come back. But at some points there, it, the dollar was sort of tracking towards its biggest rise in several decades, four decades. And it was a combination of, like, it was really a perfect storm for the dollar. We had interest rates rising and the expectation of more rising interest rates in the US. And so that was pulling money into US um, assets and, and US dollars. And at the same time, nearly everything was going wrong everywhere else in the world. Europe had a war on its doorstep, skyrocketing energy mm -hmm. prices. UK had sort of political turmoil and probably the most interesting kind of dollar-related story of the year was the fall of the yen unfolding in our region where Japan's insistence on keeping interest rates low, basically pinned at zero, uh, was just driving huge sums of money out of Japan and, and into more sort of lucrative interest-earning assets around the rest of the world. And the yen, just every new sort of major level broke through it. We, we saw the yen trading at over 150 to the dollar, lowest level since the early 1990s, and just you know, kind of totally upending almost the, the Japanese economy. In, in theory, a yen is good for the Japanese economy because it makes exporters' products more, yep. you know, more competitive, but the speed and sort of violence of the move, which was just unprecedented, is, is, was quite destabilizing. Were you surprised when the Bank of Japan intervened end of, this, end of last year? Yes, I think the, the the whole market was was blindsided by that, and it looks to have worked. I mean, it depends the the time frame that you want to look at it, and whether or not you consider the vast amounts of money spent doing this is is worthwhile. But the, the yen now seems to have stabilised its long way from from its lows, and Bank of Japan is making noises about eventually tightening policy late late. In December, just a few days before Christmas, they suddenly lifted their cap on 10-year yields and 
unleashed 3% rally in the yen in a matter of sort of moments and has got has got everyone expecting that they're finally exiting from what has been half a decade of extremely loose monetary policy. We're heading into some messages and when we come back, the business of politics. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, we speak to Tom Westbrook from Reuters about the key business stories of 2022. But now let's discuss the intersection of business and politics. You know, Tom, this year in Asia, we had a few new, new le- we had a few new leaders elected in Australia, Malaysia, and Philippines. How did the markets react? Mm-hmm. I think the markets reacted uh, with great relief to Anwar becoming prime minister in Malaysia and and the end to that sort of period of uncertainty after the election. That was really cheered by investors in in both the stock market, the bond market, and the currency as well. But after that initial move, I sort of think that the jury is out on what his coalition means in terms of policy. Mm. Um, there seems to be nervousness around regulation of liquor and gaming. And, you know, the backdrop is kind of global uncertainty. And I think foreign investors, when it comes to Malaysia, are just waiting and watching. I think the same applies in, in the Philippines. Again, there was a bit of a, uh, a relief rally and Philippines has a strong kind of domestic demand story. But from a from a global investor point of view, it, it's a wait and see and just domestic politics are now becoming subsumed to some of these bigger, bigger global trends. And and in Australia, the where I'm from, again, the election, the, the policy difference between the parties is is never that great in Australia. And so mm-hmm. from a market's perspective, apart from a few sort of idiosyncratic moves, it's not something that is is going to drive the Aussie dollar or the stock market in the same way that the price of iron ore or, or gas is going to. We shift to from local to, I guess, uh, geopolitics uh, in this region. I mean, two big conflicts, one that took place and one that is palpable. Uh, the one that really took place is the Russian-Ukraine conflict, uh, not within the Asia-Pacific rim, but very much had huge implications, especially on the likes of commodities. The other big geopolitical tension, of course, is the China-Taiwan Straits tension there, especially exacerbated by the U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan. Do you see any correlation uh, between the geopolitical tensions happening here with the Asia-Pacific markets in a whole? You talk to investors and they tell you that Taiwan has been a flashpoint forever and that it's always in the back of their minds, but it's never really driving day-to-day price action apart from you know the occasional the occasional thing but it it's just a risk that investors in that part of the world sort of accept and and move on from so you're left with a situation where many investors will call out a taiwan china conflict as a major possible risk for this year but at the same time most investors are probably bullish on taiwan and south korea because these these two countries are computer you know chip manufacturers and we're currently heading towards like the bottom of the a big downturn in computer chip demand and a lot of investment houses see that as the moment that you want to be investing yeah. in these companies and so after a very bad year in both in both countries the consensus out there is that now is the time and that the demand and sort of the significance of these computer chips has never been has never been higher and i wonder if you contrast the the flashpoints that took place in 2022 versus the flashpoints that took place, you know, four or five years ago, 
do you see that decoupling happening, right, between the economic implications of the tension or conflict now versus, say, five years ago? Do you- That's a good question. I think that um, there are a few ways to play that decoupling kind of idea in in markets. Uh, and on, on the one hand, the increasing kind of conflict or building tension between the US and China that is sort of starting to seep in behind almost every every flashpoint and increasingly so over the last few years is a risk to investing in in China or or for that matter for Chinese to be investing in the US but at the same time as it starts to push China perhaps India and Russia away from like a globalized kind of trade flow world you start to get uh, i guess a bit of a benefit of decoupling in in that assets in china start to move independently of global global forces or global mm. trends in markets and that kind of lends a diversification benefit to, to being an investor there because if we see it i mean it's it's kind of what investors are faced with right now right with the rest of the world starting to look a bit scary as economies slow down recession comes into focus and China is just emerging from COVID and starting to look like growth potential and exciting for the first time in several years. You're kind of getting these, you know, diverging outlooks for for the stock markets in China versus the rest of the world. In 2023, we expect a a global softening in developed markets, but China presents a huge opportunity. Is 2023 going to be the polar opposite of 2022 with respect to business stories? Do you expect uh, 2023 to be the same as 2022, like an extension of it? Or will the narrative, will the themes be very, very different I mean, the year is just a number, right? But no, I think, and I think if I were to sum up the views of the investment community, it would be that their forecasts for 2022 were so wildly wrong that most people are pretty cautious about forecasting too much in 2023. Yeah. And their sort of complaints about the difficulty of forecasting are probably louder than and they normally are. And I, I would say that kind of just that lack of clarity and uncertainty is probably the sort of watchwords for, for the year ahead. There's so much discussion about how the recession was is going to shape like in 2023. There's so many debates about whether the US will enter recession. Will it be a soft landing? Will it be a hard landing? Uh, people seem to be a bit, have, have more consensus about Europe. But even in Asia, there's also huge debates about the extent of the growth potential. Do you see any convergence or any alignment between reporters and analysts about where the economy is heading? Or is everyone just playing their cards close to the hearts? I think I think nobody really knows. I mean, the markets have are really choppy because the outlook on this changes every couple of weeks. I guess the the hope is that US interest rate hikes start to bite soon and cause the labor market in the US to slow down. We may have seen some early signs of that in December data released uh, last week, and that prompts a kind of pause in in interest rate hikes, so the US economy can slow down without kind of coming to a screeching halt. And at the same time, the recovery in China begins to sort of rescue global growth and the return of the Chinese consumer to demanding everything from holidays to electronics and luxury goods kind of fills that hole left by worried people in the rest of the world pulling back on consumption. Mm. What kind of data are you looking at 
very carefully to get a sense about how 2023 will unravel. It's going to be the US labor market and inflation. So any sign that US inflation heading is slowing down or that the labor market is slowing down, either or both of those things together is going to put the brakes on interest rate hikes. And it's going to be the behavior of the Chinese consumer. So Mm. Chinese retail sales, auto sales, and the behavior of the Chinese property market, any kind of uh, glean on the the confidence of Chinese sort of real estate buyers and whether that's returning. I think these will be the the key to kind of unlocking this year. All right. Are there any other milestones in 2023 that you think could shape markets? It's an interesting question. I think the year that just was has got everyone kind of believing that anything is possible. So every year, you know, some of the investment banks put out these kind of outrageous predictions or surprise, possible surprise lists. And normally they, they're full of fairly fanciful, you know, fanciful events. But I think this year, like if you look at a couple of them, you know, I think you can start to imagine that they're possible. I think we've all been taught in the past year that we should widen our kind of horizon of, of mm. what is possible. So like just just for example, uh, Saxo, they put out this publication that they call outrageous predictions and just a few of them a few of them are China India and OPEC plus leaving leaving the IMF sort of trade, world and agreeing to trade a new trade block with a new reserve asset. Okay, it's a pretty crazy idea, but you have to think it's possible. Britain holding an un-Brexit referendum, again, <laughs> it's out there. You can't dismiss these things as wild um, anymore because of what we've seen in Russia, Ukraine, of, of the scale of the Federal Reserve interest rate hikes. If you'd made those sort of predictions a year ago, it, it would have seemed fanciful. Everything now is within the realm of possibilities. <laughs> that was Tom Westbrook from Reuters. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.